0: Greetings, friends. For today's show, I wanted to do something a little different, and that is offer you a free gift. It's something that uh, I came across through personal research into a property that Stacy and I purchased, as I'll explain in a moment, and something that led me to the archives of a remarkable man, Isaac Frazi, and uh, his book. Was in his papers at the University of California Irvine that I was able to access in the archives, and this is not a book that you can easily find. It's called "Eva Love." Eva Love. It's like evolve with the word love in it. It's got a very cool design for the title page and for the book. And so, if you want to check out that graphic, you can check out uh, what we're up to at ProtectYourNoggin.org. This is an older work that's in the public domain and yet if there are any objections from family members if you're a family member greetings to you i'm so uh, so glad for your ancestors work and legacy isaac Frazi's uh, but i would certainly be glad to uh, either edit or attribute or adjust and take down even if i need to this audio recording which is meant really to help people to consider ways in which we might emancipate ourselves from mental slavery. This is something that Isaac Frazi was about. He was a bohemian and an artist and a poet, and he really, I think, provides an interesting model for thinking about ideas like progress and the economy and culture and religion. Now, he comes from a tradition where there was a lot of reaction against industrialization and the the mad, mad progress of the time. And also there was an interest in his mind, I think, of returning to the teachings of Jesus without the encumbrances of some of the religious baggage that the Western world had kind of piled onto the core teachings of Jesus, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. His ideas are going to be laid out in this little audiobook in in a way that is fiction and narrative but i think can be a fun way of exploring some of the ways we might consider making sense of our world and living our lives after we have our little intro music i'll read from a uh, a little introduction that i wrote up as i edited this and posted it to the website you can track us down both at DowSurfers.com, where i originally posted this material and also at protectyournoggin.org, where we'll have links to this show note, uh, the, the show notes for this episode, and also for all of the other episodes we've had on this podcast. Thanks for joining us. Let's go. <laughs> Eva Love. Eva Love. The quest and findings of an efficiency expert as revealed by the life and letters of George A. Blanchard, Ph.D., compiled by his private secretary, Philip J. Ferguson. Written by Isaac Jenkinson Frazee. The printer of Laguna, Laguna Beach, California. 1929 Editorial Introduction My wife and I recently purchased a tiny piece of land with old oaks and a little creek running through it. It is a spiritually meaningful place for us. We call it the Nameless Canyon Grove or sometimes Dowser for Ranch for fun. Behind it we have a view of a beautiful valley and most curiously a little castle tower. We've been obsessed with the history and the lore of this little piece of land and share this transcription here with you as just one of the many fruits of research and exploration of this place and the work of the man associated with it. There are many fascinating stories involving this land called Musa Canyon, which once was a homestead for an English teacher named Levi P. Stone who tried his hand at beekeeping. Stone left his land after a gunfight took place in 1888 between a local posse and squatters in Stone's adobe home, during which more people died there than were killed at the O.K. Corral shootout. The part of the story that concerns us here is that of a fascinating poet and artist, Isaac Frazee, 1874-1949. to 1949 who ended up moving his family down to this valley. Frazi was called down to the property to sketch the crime scene after the shootout. He subsequently fell in love with the land and eventually convinced his wife to move there. He had a Scottish mason build him a tower, but much of his time was spent cooking outdoors and exploring the hills and streams with his family, and inviting thousands of people down to a Native American culture celebration he hosted each year. Later in life, he moved to Laguna Beach, morphing his production into what became known as the Pageant of the Masters, something that continues to this day and is widely acclaimed. Frazee was best known for being a leading figure in the arts community in Laguna Beach, and for poems he would often publish in periodicals. But what is most interesting to me, a historian of ideas, is a little book he wrote with a palindrome title, "Eva Love. It's set within the framework of fictional characters. I've chosen to leave out much of the framework setup and jump right to the section of this work where the main character reflects on the lessons he's learned after his doctor forced him to slow down and step away from work. The lessons involve the weaving together of science, the teachings of Jesus, and the wisdom from Native American cultures. Frazee seems to have been even quirkier than I am, though I find myself drawn to his spirit and interests in many ways. I am grateful to the staff at the University of California, Irvine, and their library's special collections department. They let me come in and photograph pages of this book some other photos, and an incomplete poem on the theme of Eva Love, just hours before the university had to close down operations to the public, as my own was closed down because of COVID-19. What I offer here is the first product of what I expect to be a lifelong interest in Frazi, his work, and the Southern Californian bohemian culture of the early 20th century. I'm interested in Christian socialism of the time, objections to industrialism, and to arts communities that opted out of the mainstream and yet existed nicely alongside it. The reader should be aware that Frazee resonates with an interest in the sort of scientific spiritualism common to many intellectuals and cultural creatives of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He was seeking to re-enchant life in a world that had become obsessed with capitalist industrial progress, but was often dehumanizing to those people caught up in that rat race. In this book, he shows that the dehumanization did not just affect the workers, but also the clerks and business owners. Contemporary readers who are sensitive to issues relating to appropriating indigenous culture may find some of the following uncomfortable. For instance, the fictional Native American people... The main character encounters are a sort of amalgamation of Pueblo cultural practices and Lakota religious beliefs. That said, Frozi's life seems to have involved a sincere love for and interest in connecting with his real Native American neighbors, such as the Pauuma, who lived just over the hills from his castle. I plan to do extensive research in the future to confirm my suspicion that some of the spiritual themes in this book— while indeed blending ideas from various indigenous bands, may well have reflected the ideas taught by various tribal sages who had come to his festival called Kitshi Manido. He himself reflects a circumspect rejection of the myth of the noble savage in the following pages, even though he lauds pre-Columbian ways as happier than those of the industrialized West. Evelove is a form of utopian literature, but it also reflects the longing for a lost civilization common to many in the West who had become disillusioned by the violence and suffering of the Great War. Progressive hopes, characterized by the Chicago World Fair of 1893, had been dashed. This book was written on the eve of the Great Depression. It describes a sort of Shangri-La in the Sonoran Desert. As a professor who specialized in the history of Christianity and sects, in Europe and America, I find Frazee's take on Jesus, assuming his take is roughly that of the main character, Blanchard, to be fascinating. I'll let you discover that take on your own, but I resonate with the general idea that there are times when a so-called Christian culture is uncomfortable with the actual teachings of Jesus, even sometimes hostile. As Woody Guthrie sang in his song Jesus Christ, quote, When Jesus come to town, all the working folks around believed what he did say, but the bankers and the preachers, they nailed him on the cross, and they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. If Jesus was to preach what he preached in Galilee, they would lay poor Jesus in his grave. One might also detect a bit of old-school natural theology in these pages, that is, the idea that the key themes of jesus are discoverable through reason and observation of nature this tradition goes back to works such as matthew tyndall's christianity as old as creation 1730. i hope you enjoy this reading of an interesting and little-known text jeff mallinson ash wednesday 2021 the following is a summary to help abridge the first part of evil love. A profit-obsessed industrialist named George Blanchard had his lifestyle change abruptly when his doctor told him his heart health was bad, warning him, you must stop work. Get out in the open and play golf. This was especially hard news for Blanchard, who had considered every waking hour an opportunity to be productive now. He was told he had to rest. The doctor suggested he might enjoy relaxing at a remote hot springs in the Sonoran Desert, which Blanchard decided to try out. Trekking out from the hot springs one day, Blanchard comes across a lost Native American society. Blanchard learns a new way of life from these peaceful people who have taken in two other wayfarers of European descent. The text below picks up with the final letter Blanchard sent to his secretary, Phil. This section contains most of the wisdom and insights Frazee was trying to communicate about the intersections of science, the teachings of Jesus, and Native American spirituality. I've been slowly adapting myself to the new surroundings. Of course, I have no way of compensating these people for all their kindly helpfulness, as they know nothing of money, or its equivalent, not even wampum, save as beads and decorations. Consequently, it behooves me to make myself useful in as many ways as possible. Strange to say, I find it an ever-increasing delight for willingness seems to be the keynote of service, transmuting thereby toil into pleasure. And so we labor together with our primitive planting sticks in such a happy, unhurried, deliberate way that I have almost forgotten the meaning of efficiency. The old chief, or more correctly speaking, father of the tribe, for these people are not warlike in the least, has given me a wonderful pair of old moccasins, which he has worn for many years, and which he calls the moccasins of willingness. I am now wearing them with peace to my spirit and comfort to my soul. They are indeed very comfortable. Somehow, I already feel a quickening of my impulses toward helpfulness and service. As soon as my strained leg permitted, the chief furnished me a guide to lead me up to the Pinion Mountains to find the white stranger brothers who lived with mountain members of the tribe. Here I found one of the white men. Surely enough, he was Edgerton, although no one would ever suspect it, for he is now the very picture of health, and, save for his lighter color hardly distinguishable from the Indians with whom he labors. At first, he seemed to resent my coming among the lost people until learning how unintentional it all was on my part, how being hopelessly lost among the shifting sand hills, we eventually glimpsed the distant crests of the Pinion Mountains and finally came into this desert-circled land whose people welcomed us into their homes as lost brothers. In explaining my presence at the Mud Springs Oasis, a place of which he had evidently never heard, I told him my name was George Arnold, purposely omitting the Blanchard, as it might lead to unnecessary explanations. I further explained I had made more or less a failure of life, a fact, Ferguson, which I have but recently realized, and had sought the desert to regain my health. This seemed to make a real appeal to him, as no doubt he too considered his own life a failure. At least he seemed glad to have gotten as far as possible away from it, and to have found peace here among his new friends. My sincere interest in the lost people, and my desire to learn more of the communal phase of their primitive life, gained his hearty approval, and opened up to my sharing the seemingly exhaustless stories of his own research. For he had long made a passion of ethnological investigations, even before coming to the desert, and had endeared himself greatly to these people. One evening, as the fire of fragrant cedar logs burned low, Edgerton said to me, It's very strange that the Indians should have gained such a keen conception of the qualities of matter. Of course, he knew nothing of the fundamental facts of science, of the 92 elements constituting matter, of the atomic structure of matter, how each atom is in truth, a miniature universe in which its proton or nucleus is a central sun radiating, pulsating light, heat, and energy, around which flash electrons as incomprehensible speed although he does not know that all matter evolves from motion is never free from it even in so-called solids and finally that matter is indestructible that is beyond the power of total annihilation nor is he cognizant of the marvelous power locked within the atom yet with all his ignorance of things scientific he seems through intuitive foresight close observation and conjecture to have evolved a pleasing and clever theory regarding creation that is quite beyond the grasp of the scientifically trained mind. To the Indian, creation is in itself positive proof of an all-wise creator, who being the source of all in all, created of himself all things for the good of all things. Therefore, He is the great unseen or spirit of all pervading good. That is the good in all things, in the clod, in the grass, the tree, the buffalo, the stars, the moon, the sun, and the heart of man. Each is obligated to its special service and endowed with intuitive urge Or inclination to function perfectly all save in the heart of man who through wayward willfulness has appropriated unto himself a will of his own which often goes contrary to that of the great spirit who though grieved like an earthly parent over the actions of a spoiled child leaves it to learn by experience that willfulness leads to friction and friction to trouble Nevertheless, a creator who seems to love his human children above all other creatures and to reward their obedience with special favor until they at times seem to take on attributes of the great spirit, that unselfishness that begat all things for the good of others, who endowed all things with the spirit of unselfish service, until unselfish service becomes in truth the inner urge of all things. Thus, the Indian finds in service the interrelated quality test in all matter, the unselfish motive or impulse being the final test of service. Thus, the wolf through service becomes the dog, man's best friend, the tom-tom, he who calls to counsel. The calumet, the counselor. The bow and spear are but wayside sticks transmuted by service into weapons of defense. It is the joint service of the stick and string which transform it into a unity of purpose, the bow. Consequently, their joint service has become sacrificed to the making of a bow, which in turn becomes a materialization. Of the service spirit. Thus, the Indian who knows nothing about the mineral and chemical properties in matter further than that the rock disintegrates into soil, builds up the plant life, the plant is food for the animal life, and finally the ashes of man still retain many of the rocks former ingredients, conceives the idea that all matter is interrelated Through its spiritual obligation to service, and thus service becomes the dominant characteristic of matter. All matter being endowed with sufficient intuitive urge of primal purpose to give forth unreservedly to the limit of its obligation. Thus have they blended spirit with matter, perpetuating their faith by their simple, though eloquent, burial rites. Probably you will remember the skeleton of an Indian in the Southwest Museum, which is exhibited as found buried on its knees, and which I call the truth seeker, from the fact that with its left hand it still clasps to its heart a crystal, while with the right it holds to its ear a seashell. Thus listening to the mysterious voice of the Spirit, clutching at the crystal of truth, while kneeling in sincere humility among the ashes of peace-smoke prayers to the great Spirit. It becomes, indeed, the most eloquent of all mortuary messages known to man. The golden glory of King Tut's royal tomb, with its lavish display of human vanity and superstition, seem contemptible in comparison with this poor Indian's sincere expression of humility and faith. Edgerton had much to tell me about the brother, as the Indians call the other white man, saying his real name is Schleicher. Of his wonderful influence over the Indians, or rather their sincere love for each other, he had lived among them for many years having been driven into the desert country by wartime persecution, under suspicion of having been a German sympathizer, owing to his persistent preaching of the Sermon on the Mount, such messages then being taboo. But of course, as Edgerton explained, it was no time then for a war-crazed people to listen patiently to a love-your-enemy proposition. Since businesses and even the church Were sacrificing their all in defense of the state, so naturally he was repudiated by his panic-stricken, popularity-seeking bishop, maligned by the press, and thrown into prison as a possible spy. He was eventually released through the kindly efforts of an army chaplain, who, seeing his heroic stand for the faith of his fathers and secretly sympathizing with him, used his influence on his behalf. Emancipated and broken in spirit from long captivity, he finally drifted into the desert to at least die in peace. And here, among their encircling sand dunes, the lost people found him. He was the first white man they had ever seen, and has long been considered a veritable shaman or medicine man among them. All of this made me more anxious than ever to see him. So I persuaded Edgerton to furnish me an Indian boy to guide me over the mountain to the Rancheria village, where he was caring for the sick. A climb of some three miles over marvelously well-kept paths brought us to the summit of the pass. These Indians have an age-old rule, which has become a custom, that each person, in passing over a trail, must always leave it smoother or more passable than when he started on it. Thus it was I observed my guide, a bright lad of some fourteen years, ever now and then as we'd walk along, stooped down to toss a pebble out of the path or break off some branch hanging too low. Small acts, yet in the sum total, resulting in a splendid system of broad, well-kept trails connecting all the rancherias. Through untold generations this custom has become an ingrained trait or automatic habit, whereby each traveler unconsciously smooths the way for another. And so it is that their word for benefactor also means trail mender. Our way from the summit led us along the rim of a deep pine and cedar-clad canyon, whose cliffs of chocolate-colored conglomerate glowed brightly through the dark trees. Some four miles down the trail, the canyon made an abrupt turn. Here we beheld a beautiful well-watered valley with a small cluster of communal buildings clinging like shallow nests beneath the eaves of the overhanging cliff. The evening sun cast a golden radiance over all, and with the sparkling stream and verdant fields made up a vision of tranquil beauty, plenitude, and peace. A mile further on, we gained the floor of the canyon, and shortly after the foot of the cliff on which nestled the village. Here the lad inquired of an old Indian woman for the brother. She told us he was over at the sweat lodge, caring for a crippled Indian. Starting over, we met him on the trail. So engrossed with assisting the Indian, he did not notice us until the lad spoke to him. Then, glancing up, somewhat dazed, he stretched forth his hand, calling me, "'Brother.' It seems he had heard of our coming among the lost people shortly after our arrival in the land." Although his manner was cordial, nevertheless, I seemed to sense some aversion on his part to another white man coming among them. He, however, made me welcome, giving me a room adjoining his own apartment, for these communal buildings are apartment houses indeed. Once inside his door, I became his guest, and with true Indian hospitality was made one of the household." He had many questions to ask regarding Edgerton, whom he had not seen for over two weeks, each of them being busily occupied with tribal duties, he with the sick and Edgerton superintending the gathering of the pinion and acorn crop. It soon became evident he was a great admirer of Edgerton. He told me he had never known a man so absolutely unselfish, that he had so completely sunk his own personality into that of the tribe. They now consider him a real Indian brother. One memorable evening, as we sat together watching the twilight clothe the desert mountains in supernatural glory, he told me of his past. He said, I had long considered Christ's Sermon on the Mount as being the most comprehensive measure of his message to man, the fullest, most complete, reasonable demonstration of his plan for the spiritual regeneration of the world. The very fact that during the war, when suspicion, fear, and hate were rampant over the world, that it should suddenly become taboo a subject, to be avoided, even repudiated by the churches which had previously preached it, convinced me more than ever that it must be indeed the very truth, the universal panacea for the world in its hour of uncertainty and need so i studied it prayerfully and the more i investigated its deeper spiritual meaning the more i became astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes becoming thoroughly convinced that in this marvelous message is to be found all the essentials for divine guidance of all the people of earth And sincerely believing this, I courageously preached it. This indiscretion led to my expulsion from the pulpit, persecution, and finally to my flight into this desert, where, strange to say, I have found these untutored people who, for untold centuries, have been living from day to day their lives of happy communal helpfulness unconsciously demonstrating the practical workability of those divine truths promulgated ages ago by an humble carpenter in faraway Galilee, none other than the Spirit of God made manifest in the flesh. What wonder these mysterious revelations should have drawn me into spiritual kinship with this peculiar people who in some inexplicable way had sensed divine truth. Were these savages, too, a chosen people of God? And if so, was not I, too, favored of God in having my lot cast among them? With some such thoughts, I started my investigations into their tribal lore and ancient legends. From the very first, they treated me with a marked deference I could not account for. In fact, more like sincere reverence. This, I later found to be their customary attitude toward all albino things. Like other primitive people, they considered the chance white or albino animal sacred, and I, being the first white man that they had ever seen, they naturally attributed spiritual powers to me, no doubt considering me a living spirit, as it were, returned from the sandhills of the dead. At any rate... I found them a kindly-disposed hospitable people, with but few wants, and those easily supplied through the primitive tillage of their fertile valley-lands, which with wild fruits, nuts, and game, sufficed for all their needs, thus allowing them much leisure, to devote to the various crafts, merry-making, and numerous rituals. I find them intensely dramatic and cleverly inclined to dramatize with dance and song their many beautiful myths, which, being direct interpretations from nature, are delightfully sympathetic, poetic, and artistic. Possibly, this continual attitude of communal helpfulness gains for them the valuable dramatic power of getting the other fellow's viewpoint. At any rate, they are very clever actors capable of completely losing themselves in their various roles, with mimicry and pantomime that is truly eloquent. I had hoped when first coming among them to find some opening whereby I could minister unto their spiritual needs, but after being with them for some time, it dawned upon me that these peace-loving, so-called ignorant savages were actually living day by day, unconsciously demonstrating those very truths which I had hoped to reveal unto them. In measuring them up with the requirements of the Sermon on the Mount, I found that although it was unknown to them, unless in some vague cosmic way, they had unconsciously accepted it as the groove of least resistance. And yet the one way of fullest individual expression, each personally sharing so radiantly, so generously with the others, as to blend in the one spiritual purpose of service. Thus with frugality, labor, and love, they have been going on their happy, helpful way, knowing absolutely nothing of science, religion, or civilization, save as revealed to them in the Book of Nature. And yet, measuring up so completely to that golden rule laid down by the master of men in his matchless Sermon on the Mount, slowly grasping, in their intuitive, reverent way, a deeper, more sympathetic insight into the very essence of matter than even science has yet to attain. And yet, measuring up so completely to that golden rule laid down by the master of men in his matchless sermon on the mount, slowly grasping in their intuitive, reverent way a deeper, more sympathetic insight into the very essence of matter than even science has yet attained to. And why should they not be even as blessed ones, each of them considering himself a veritable child of the great spirit, Therefore, all brothers in one great family with whom it is a pleasure as well as obligation to share the fruits of one's hands, the gifts of kind old Nakomis, the Earth Mother. Of course, I do not claim these Indians to be a perfect people, yet they too are subject to all the inherent traits and passions of mankind. Yet their sustained attitude of communal helpfulness Of actually wanting to help each other, has stimulated each individual with a spiritual enthusiasm to serve for the good of all, the spontaneous unselfish impulse to serve, until in time it has become a communal, a tribal trait, an ingrained life purpose, a popular spirit, a spiritual intent, a religion as it were, whereby with leisurely efforts all have an ample sufficiency for their daily needs with an abundance of extra time to devote to other pursuits, pastimes, and pleasures in the way of craftwork, dramatics, dancing, and singing, each one following out his own inclinations in the quest of happiness through self-expression, as well as the laudable desire of each one to follow up some especially congenial task on which to work so seemingly slow. For there being no incentive of money gain and time being of no importance, each task becomes a lengthened-out labor of love, and the result, the leisurely best effort and personality or individuality of the artist woven into his work. Thus their standard of artistic merit is how much patient love and unselfish service can be merged into the task thereby evincing the artist's best self in his work thus their work becomes individualistic and consequently full of individual charm While spiritually, the Indian claims that the great spirit or maker of all things made everything for a purpose, and each and every thing with an inner urge to serve that purpose to the best of its limitations, and in so doing is entitled to the spiritual awards for good or faithful service, which includes further opportunity for greater service, for the joy of unselfish service makes of service a spiritual privilege." The leaves, which for a season serve as lungs for the tree, in time finally fall to the ground to be transmuted through the soil into feeders for the roots, thus re-energizing the tree and rising as life-giving sap to burgeon forth into more leaves. This gives the Indian a self-evident glimpse of one small cycle of service. He also observes that in the final death of the tree, it too merges through soil action into other trees, which, though their leaves, flowers, and fruits be different, their cycle of service is largely the same. He also knows that as a father is pleased with the dutiful service of his child, so the Great Spirit, who is indeed a father to all his red children, must smile with loving approval on their acts of unselfish service. Note, for instance, how zealously the uninformed Indian follows day by day those spiritual ideals expressed so beautifully in the divine beatitudes and sayings of our beloved Master. And observe how logically they illustrate reactions of the universal spirit upon the righteous actions of universal man. Divine blessings which seem to work automatically as like begets like, mercy begets mercy, forgiveness, forgiveness. Likewise, the meek are those who are not contentious and so inherit temporal as well as spiritual peace. Blessed also are the peacemakers for they are as children of the great spirit of all pervading good and therefore inheritors of universal peace. Ye are the salt of the earth, a savor of good for others, a preserver of others, thereby fulfilling the chemical service of salt, giving forth its own strength for the preservation of others. But if the salt hath lost its savor, its elemental goodness, or unselfish impulse to serve it is thence good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men in all likelihood this parable of the salt refers to the giving forth of our physical strength the salty sweat of service in the way of helpfulness the sacrifice of self for the good of others in actually bearing the burdens of others tears also are as salt the salty tears of sympathy ye are the light of the world. Christ no doubt refers to that inner spiritual radiance that illuminates through the mind of man his power to brighten, to radiate the unselfish impulse of light, to burn with anxiety and solitude for the good of others, to finally be consumed of the unselfish service that others seeing by thy good work may glorify thy Father in heaven who as the source of all unselfishness gave all things for the good of all things. The unselfish impulse to serve all things, therefore the Christ or service impulse made manifest through service in all things. For all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made, for he was one with God. Before entering upon these final deductions and summing up this desert quest, I wish to add my own tribute to that of Schleicher's, regarding our mutual friend Edgerton, the scientist. He certainly is the loneliest, most unselfishly sincere truth-seeker I have ever known. And yet for all his friendly helpfulness, a mysterious man seemingly set apart to ascertain at any cost the hidden truth... He is not a contentious man. In fact, one who, though heroically devoted to scientific research, unconsciously reserves one portion of his mind as a little secret inner room set aside for the first time being at least as a repository for his ingrained faith with which he does not even try to reconcile his scientific findings. Purposely keeping the two apart, not being contentious, He sees no reason to contend for scientific truth on one hand, nor spiritual faith on the other. Neither have I ever heard him denounce or ridicule another man's theory or faith, his idea being denunciation is not proof. Truth does not need it, and faith is above it. I also wish to register herewith this confession, which forced itself upon me last night out beneath the inquisitive desert stars, that my life, with all its chasing after needless millions, has been more or less a misguided mess of wasted energy. It is true there is the Blanchard Foundation, with its ever-increasing benefactions, which I feel is at least a partial restitution, and which, as the Vox Populi Profundi of our publicity organ is heard the world around. Nevertheless, something seems to be missing in our cleverly arranged program. With all our mass motion and vast production, something still seems lacking. Can it be the motive back of it all? Verily, it seems so. And yet with all our splendid enthusiasm, tireless energy, cocksure efficiency, and clever psychoanalysis poured so lavishly into the crucible of life, it has produced nothing more than innumerable ingots of steel. Can material restitution compensate a man for robbing him of his spiritual birthright, namely his individual task, That which he alone can perform, Even as the Indian basket-weaver, Crooning happily, while working out His own individual design, So slow it seems but idleness, And yet the product of his very soul. May not we vain exploiters of men Cripple ourselves in the selfish exploitation of others the masterpiece I might have painted, the song you might have sung, and the happy, helpful lives we might have lived while making fewer, but better things. Yes, Phil, down here in the desert, I have had the time, opportunity, and distance in which to gain a truer perspective on things. I thank God from the bottom of my heart there is still one spot on earth not yet reached by the I-S-A of the U-S-A. When I see this happy, contented people living from day to day their serenely grateful lives of communal happiness, as well as individual self-expression in leisurely, love-made handcraft, I am compelled to consider my own world-famous efficiency as tinkling brass and a sounding symbol. Of course the machine is already constructed, an established institution, and running smoothly with its thousands upon thousands of human cogs, case-hardened steel, and I, for one, dread to think what might happen should it suddenly be stopped. Thus from one fear to another competition speeds us rashly on, gaining mass momentum, till even I, Builder of the machine, dread the consequences. On the theory of eliminating all seeming non-essentials from a problem before attempting its final solution, a lifelong practice in all my practical so-called successful business ventures, I have approached this most important of all problems, one on which the very soul of man leans for support, the eternal, Fundamental and universal meaning of this phenomenon of spirit and matter which we call life. Naturally, we must begin with the savage or natural man as we find him untrammeled with that mass of materialized conjecture and self aggrandizement which the world calls civilization. In him, we invariably find a creator, evincing at least some inherent traits of a divine creator animated by an inner urge or soul, groping as a grain of wheat, seeking the light, giving forth unceasingly of its inner urge towards some ever-present universal need. Through his own inherent urge, primitive man naturally conceived of a primal or universal urge, a creator, who of himself created all things for the good of all things, as evinced in the ever-open book of nature, wherein soil ministers to plant life, which in turn returns through cycles of never-ending service to the earth mother. And how natural that man, cognizant of that divine inner urge, should at times respond to its spiritual unselfish impulse, and in so doing, experience that ever-attendant peace, which naturally follows an expression of the unselfish impulse. How natural for him to realize from this divine experience some spiritual kinship with the mysterious force that rules through nature. That man is one with the immortal spirit that pervades all things and consequently heir to that immortality of the spirit which was before all things, and will survive all things in some spiritual urge beyond this temporal life in a spirit land, or as he likes to term it, the happy hunting ground is self-evident. "'Twas thus the Indian developed those splendid traits of friendliness, hospitality, and brotherhood, which are so characteristic of the primitive man. Property rights were unknown to the nomad. He had no need for hoarding, further than the fewest possible hands made utensils, the product of his leisure moments. Consequently, greed and avarice offered no temptations to his simple needs." life was made up of unselfishly sharing nature's bounty from day to day but with little thought of the coming morrow how unconsciously his daily round of experience and observation ripened into a life full of first-hand information actual contact as it were with the essentials necessary to an unbiased solving of the riddle of life the spiritual brotherhood of all things with that strange coincidence other than the university of universal truth, did the Indian grasp those spiritual truths so kindred to the teachings of the Divine Master, who, though unknown to them in the flesh, was spiritually revealed in every opening flower. It seems the Indian not only grasped the interrelation of matter, but also grasped the kindred idea of interrelated vibrations. Thus, the drumming of the pheasants' wings, starting up a kindred vibration in the heart of man. The call of the coyote, the moan of the wood dove, the joy of the brook, each and all direct nature vibrations registering sound, each with its special appeal to the ear, the mind, or to kindred emotions of the heart. The sounds forming mental pictures, as it were. Thus, all their music was born of nature sounds, emphasized as in nature by reiteration. Their chants and tom-toms were supposed to gain in volume and appeal through reiteration, the sound waves increasing with the fervor of that which produced them. So the inanimate tom-tom gained a spirit voice and was accredited with the power and right to talk, at least as an interpreter of the thunder gods." The Indian being a close observer of nature, each sound visualized perfectly, each shading being full of meaning, naturally we find in him a perfect type of the natural or nature man, endowed with a perfect physique, an alert brain, a keen perception of each and every passing phase of nature, in fact, an inveterate, tireless, enthusiastic student of life's daily practical contacts with nature. What wonder is it that he should prove to be the first investigator, the primitive scientists, seer, poet, musician, and seeker into spiritual sequence of things about him. How was it possible that he should grasp, even by mere conjecture, those universal truths, which even modern science, with all its tools, libraries, and laboratories, are still wrangling over? If the Indian conjectured a theory that worked out harmoniously and convincingly to his mind a thoroughly satisfactory solution to the meaning of life, the interrelation of matter and spirit, what have our own scientists, with their test tubes, calipers, and conflicting theories more to offer. If the Indian finds harmony and happiness in his conjecture, that is more than we have attained to. When, as with Schleicher, we compare these poor Indians with that divine standard, the golden rule, as laid down in the Sermon on the Mount, how completely they measure up to its blessed promises, a people who, though poor in material things, are rich in spiritual harmony. A people who, though like all mortals, acquainted with sickness, sorrow, and death, yet are comforted of their faith in the Spirit of all-pervading good. A people meek and lowly, yet rich in their close contact with Mother Earth. A people who have verily hungered for a closer knowledge and kinship with the Spirit, and are thereby filled with the Spirit. A merciful people, begetting mercy, inheriting mercy. A people, pure in heart, who see good in all things. A people who, as makers of peace, have become, in truth, children of good. A people who, though subject to passion and doubt, as all men are, yet having overcome all through the unselfish impulse to serve, have entered into that haven of spiritual harmony that serenity of peace with all things. Therefore, though ignorant heathen, are they not children of God and in a large way entitled to the divine beatitudes of our blessed Master? After dismissing the primitive myths of the Indian, the highbrow pretensions of science, the superfluities of the church, and the organized selfishness of civilization, we still have a wholesome sufficiency on which to reason out a correlation of ideas and ideals. The Indian's conception of the interrelation of all matter through the service spirit of primal purpose pervading all matter, the clod, the grass, the star, the sun, and the heart of man, seems logical and all comprehensive. Science, on the other hand, concedes only the material interrelation of all matter through the 92 elements constituting matter. Science also concedes the radioactivity, the giving forth of all matter through the ceaseless evolving protonic impulse of the atom. While Christ, who was the Spirit of God made manifest in the flesh, tells us we are one with the salt of the earth, the light of the world and children of the Spirit. We have seen how the Indian's faith brings him a life of happy, helpful service and attendant contentment. While the scientist, probably the most unselfish of all men, whose life of self-denial and sacrifice is an eloquent refutation of his so-called barren faith, is more or less a discontented soul. In trying to harmonize the Indians scientists, and evangelists' viewpoint let us concentrate on the fewest possible points of contact, enlarging on them as we delve deeper into the subject. Thus, the Indian claims that the great spirit of all-pervading good permeates all matter with the spirit urge of the primal purpose, endowing all matter, obligating all matter, With sufficient urge of service to accomplish the primal purpose thus we have the Indian and the evangelist agreeing there is an interrelation of urges running through all matter even giving forth within outward for some primal purpose to serve final purpose through the urge of purpose revealed to the Indian as the service impulse of the Great Spirit energizing, enlivening all matter. To the scientist, the universal urge is the radioactive impulse of atomic power constituting all matter, while to the evangelist, the universal urge is the Christ spirit of unselfish service glorifying the purpose of God, the source of all good. Thus the evangelist and the Indian practically coincide on the spiritual urge in matter while the scientist considers the universal urge merely as a mechanical manifestation of matter. Let us now investigate more closely this purely physical conception of matter to see if we can in any reasonable way harmonize its urge with that of the spirit. As science only deals with matter, let us examine more closely with sympathetic spiritual sight, as it were, into the actual workings of the atom to see if we can find any analogy between the inner urge of nature, the inner radioactive force of science, and the inner impulse of the spirit. First, then let us consider the fact that science concedes the interrelation of all matter through the 92 elements constituting matter. Further, that all matter is atomic, That all atoms are miniature universes, in each of which is a central sun or nucleus, evolving radiant energy and light. That matter is the energizing residue of electronic motion, evolving from the spontaneous explosions or impulses of the nucleus or central sun of that miniature universe, which constitutes the atom of which all forms are made this mysterious evolving impulse, ever giving forth unreservedly of itself, ever giving forth unreservedly of itself in spontaneous radiations of light, heat, and energy, a power misnamed electronic in honor of the mythical goddess Electra, so called to designate that miracle working impulse, which still lies beyond the comprehension of science, and yet a word which the thoughtless throng glibly dubs juice or current until it has lost its primal mysterious meaning, becoming instead a shibboleth of trade. Even so, the beautiful word love, which through careless usage has become debased into a synonym for passion, desire, selfishness, and lust. Likewise, the word evolution, through being bandied about by the thoughtless mob, has eventually lost its former eloquent meaning. Then, in lieu of this mythical, meaningless term, let us submit a freshly coined word of scientific meaning, the expressive word evil love, suggesting that evolutionary force which evolved from within out through all matter. Let us consider this spontaneous, evolving, radioactive, mysterious, evil love. First, from the viewpoint of the scientist, who concedes that matter emerges from motion, the evil love spontaneously evolving its radioactive inner impulses, is emissions of energy and light. For is not the ever-radiant evil of a pulsation of primal purpose, that inner urge of divine unselfishness which permeates all matter, endowing all things with miracle-working impulse, yea, the Christ impulse of service? Thus we find in this phenomena of energy a marvelous manifestation of spontaneous self-giving power, miraculously renewed through its ceaseless giving of self to serve some outer good. And so even in an atom, we realize a complete carrying out of the mysterious miracle, working evil love, a logical demonstration of moral purpose or good intent along mechanical lines of least resistance, each atom being endowed with the dynamic urge of primal purpose, fulfilling through radiation its obligation of unselfish service. Thus, through evil love, do we realize measure, gauge, and demonstrate through the mechanical action of directional effort a moral tendency or gesture of giving forth unreservedly of self in a plan divinely consistent with the actual working of the God intent, the divine unselfish primal purpose, testing all by the unselfish impulse to serve, to give forth radiantly, ungrudgingly, unreservedly, yea, unselfishly, that divine endowment of unselfish purpose, even to the final disintegration of material form in merging into other evolutions of the spirit. Thus we see that while science confines herself solely to the investigation of material fact, ignoring spirit as being immaterial, irrelevant, and unethical, nevertheless with her test tubes, calipers, and blind devotions to service, she too seems to be proselytizing for the Spirit. If the Sermon on the Mount is the true standard of spiritual efficiency, whereby we must measure all spiritual values, then through this standard we should be able to isolate its inherent unit of the Spirit, even as science hath done for matter. If successful, this unit of Spirit should prove to be the final test of all Spirit, even of God himself. This we find in the unselfish impulse, that final proof of primal goodness, the giving of self for others. Even the scientist, through unselfish devotion to his work in the interest of benefiting mankind in general, demonstrates in practice at least the unselfish service impulse. The Indian believes in it as a revelation of nature, and naturally lives it, while the so called Christian believes in it as a matter of faith, preaches it, and occasionally follows it. Thus, we see that science, religion, and nature coincide on the fundamental importance of the unselfish service impulse in solving man's obligation to his Maker. To the spirit of all pervading good, the divine evil love, or evolving love yea the source of all unselfishness the good or God of all things even in an atom we find the divine purpose of God made manifest through the Christ impulse of service ever giving forth so harmoniously as to be one with the attendant spirit of peace thus In the miniature universe of an atom we have a miraculous manifestation of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They being one in the spirit of unselfish service, for without him was nothing made that was made, the unselfish impulse in your heart and mine. The End. Finally, the following is a seemingly unfinished poem related to this concept of evil love found in the special collections of the University of California, Irvine dedicated to the documents related to Isaac Frazee. The poem is called Creation, Its Creator. Creation, its creator doth proclaim. The source from whence all things created came the primal impulse of unselfishness, the good or God in all, one and the same. Thus, the Creator is not God alone. He is the good in all, even the leaf and stone. Verily the source, the force evolve from whence the good in all, the all in one then from the rocks disintegrating dust a shoot of pulsing living green was thrust t'was thus the lichens grasses shrubs and trees radiantly responded to their trust and then from out the barren rock grown green a miracle of animated life was seen to rise to reach meander here and there and even observe their kind with interest keen. Yet could we, with microscopic vision, trace the various atoms adrift in space? Each would seem an infinitesimal world circling within its own predestined place. And lo, a godlike brute that upright stands and fashioneth things with dexterous hands ever and anon looking anxiously to the stars meditates, implores, demands. The sky is God's great inverted mixing bowl through which elemental ingredients roll, all leavened with the impulse of God intent, the miraculous ever of the soul. And though we may not hear the rumbling sound of the millstones on their eternal round, this much we know, for purposes divine. Yea, for loaf of service the grist is ground. The mills of God, they grind exceedingly slow. And yet how fine the grists of stardust show. Still doubt ye not, nor ask ye why, save only this. Tis service, will it so. And as the spinning top a tilting stands, yet sways obedient to the spinner's hands. Even so, methinks, our little reeling earth in some way comprehends divine commands. And lo, the temple veil is rent in twain, till even with spirit sight we see again the mystery of mysteries revealed, yea, even the primal plan of God made plain. For as desert silences are harmonies of seeming stillness, subdued to perfect peace, so the melodies of swirling spheres are all attuned to heaven's accordant keys. The long-delayed drip, drip from clouds above, and sad recitations of the dove are ever to the lone, lean, thirsty land, varying voices of sympathy and love one loitering at death's door did whisper me this much of that dark inner mystery listen brother death is a crucible life the golden opportunity for when from out their sepulchres of sleep the timorous souls of rest freed mortals creep each from his narrow lonely cell to breathe those tender secrets too divine to keep subconsciously as in dreams one hears heavenly harmonies of swirling spheres and the onrush of wings invisible yea sounds unlawful for our earthly ears atomic amities cohesive clays and ductile metals from the friendly blaze all to form the cup of loving service a draft of sharing for the desert ways behold Hath not the ancient alchemist of love called forth to cold tryst all the elemental affinities from out their star-jammed halls of Anne? The poem ends abruptly here, without punctuation. Thank you for listening, friends. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much.